0: I couldn't sleep, and so I, I researched, man, how long have we been at this? And God's Word, that, that the parting words of an individual uh, are really telling about what is emphasized and what's important. And part of that is because if we're aware that our, these will be our last words, we, we talk about significant things. We're, we're no longer uh, trafficking in, in discussion that really doesn't matter because we know time is short and we must say uh, what matters? Well, Psalm one forty-five is the last of the Davidic psalms. It's also the last of the acrostic psalms. Um, an acrostic uh, being the the alphabet is spelled out, uh, beginning with the beginning letter at the beginning of every verse. Now, you'll notice, for those Hebrew scholars, Dion, I'm talking to you. Um, there are twenty-two. Uh, letters in the Hebrew Bible you find that there are twenty one uh, verses here, so why the disparity and the The simple response is that I, I believe it 's none is not found in many acrostics in the Hebrew uh, writing, and so we find the same thing here um, there is the, the, the character none is taken out, but last of david 's psalms and last of the acrostic psalms. So, the question is, what do you think would be the subject matter of David's last psalm? Is it suffering? We know that David is acquainted with suffering. Is it um, leadership in some form? We know that he was the king. Um, Is it wisdom? And the answer to all of those is no. Um, Those are included in some sense, but the real emphasis of David's last psalm is a psalm of praise, which if we understand the life of David, we understand that that is totally appropriate. And we know that this isn't something that is just by happenstance, but this psalm is inspired by the very Spirit of Almighty God, and that This is with intention. So we need to pay attention here that the emphasis on the life of David is found here to be an emphasis of praise. So with that in mind, if you would stand and do honor the reading of God's Word as we read together. Beginning in verse 1. I will extol you, my God and King, And I will declare your greatness. They shall put forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That one verse, fantastic. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of Your kingdom and tell of Your power to make known to the children of man Your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of Your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of His words and kind in all His works." The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will sing the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Would you pray with me, beloved? Father God, we come into Your presence tonight. So thankful for this psalm. What an encouraging reminder that you are gracious and merciful, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is a quintessential reality about you and how you reveal yourselves to us. And so we come tonight between the weight, uh, beneath the weight of your, your majesty thankful that you are a compassionate God who moves in our direction. Father, would you meet us and mold us in this hour? In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. David begins here in Psalm 1, verse 1, by crying out and exalting God as my God and King, which is of great significance if we think about it. Uh, This isn't a man who is low on the totem pole, to use the colloquial phrase, that is calling the living God, my God, and King. This is the preeminent leader of the nation of Israel. This is the King. And yet, he acknowledges that though David is King himself uh, and King of God's elect nation of the earth, um, yet God is nevertheless the King of kings. And so he is David's king too. Uh, there are um, individuals who lead in particular times and p- for particular seasons. There are, if we were in a British type of constitutional monarchy, there, there is the sovereign um, of that particular realm. But every earthly sovereign knows that ultimately there is the definite article sovereign, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and the reality is that our God david 's king, is king over all of creation and rules over all things and if you happen to be here tonight and you 're not a believer he 's king and lord over your life in some sense as well, whether you like that or not. Um, no one can escape the reality of god 's divine sovereignty. Uh, we cannot somehow obfuscate His ruling over the universe simply by petulantly refusing to believe. God is still King of everything regardless of our response. So isn't it wonderful for those of us who know Christ that not only is He sovereign, but that He has drawn us individually unto Himself. And He has fashioned us and molded us To have a relationship with him. And so the question is then, what is it that we should bring to the king? What is it that the king deserves? What can we come into his presence with that would be reasonable? Now, we learned last Sunday morning, if you were here, about the aseity of God, and that is that He exists in and of Himself. He owns all things, and there is really nothing that we can give to Him that doesn't already belong to Him. But the question is more succinct. As we come before Him, what is it that is right to do in response to who He is? And the answer to that is found in verses 1 and 2, that we are to praise Him or worship Him rightly. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. David is saying, you are my King, you are the Sovereign over all of the universe, and not only the nation of Israel, but every nation that will rise and fall. You are God. And then he says, "So in light of that reality, I will do what is reasonable and right, and I will praise your name." Now we see first he, he says, I, "I will praise you." Um, he, he's again talking about worship here. I will extol you as the is the ESV translation. Um, but what what does that mean? Is worship something? And I think in the modern mindset, when we talk about worship, we talk about something that we go into a religious place to do, and ultimately we want to walk away feeling and, and receiving from that worship a certain experience. And, and I do believe that, that it's right to see worship as an experience in some sense. But friends, what we need to understand uh, biblically is worship is not coming to get something from from God now we can ask uh, for God's blessing we can take our petitions before him all of that is true but ultimately worship when you boil it down is merely acknowledging God for who he is it's doing what David has already done in saying my God and King." It is acknowledging His rightful rule over our lives and praising Him for how He executes that rule in absolute perfection. He says, I will praise you every day forever and ever. What does this every day mean? It it, it means I'm not only going to praise you on the Sabbath. I'm not only going to just set aside a particular period of time. And friends, if we're not careful, we become Christians who think, well, I will praise God. I think I've shared this with you before. Um, I will praise God on Sunday morning. I I had a college friend who had a very hardworking father-in-law owned, um, if I remember correctly, they were feed stores in a rural area of Missouri, and one of his phrases was he he would tell you uh, if you brought something spiritual up to him, he would say, listen, work is work and church is church. Get to work. Well, the reality is even work can be worship if we respond rightly. Um, And what David is saying here is I'm not going to I'm not going to compartmentalize worship into one day or one experience. I want everything that I do, every moment to be in some sense, worship. Think about how that would change the way that we live if we reckon with the fact... That yes, there is something special and unique about our gathering into worship. But really, everything that we do is to be done to the glory of God. And Because if worship is merely acknowledging God for who He is and responding accordingly, then everything that we do in our lives can in fact be, when done under the um, compulsion of the Spirit, it can be done as an act of worship. And then he goes on. To say, I will praise you forever and ever. Now, if you're a country music fan, you can't come to these words without thinking of Randy Travis. And the little twang is in the back of my head right now. Um, but I think when Randy Travis... Listen, that's a, those are great songs. Um, sorry, the hillbilly comes out. Um, when Randy Travis is singing forever and ever and and the love song, he's talking about a definite period of time. I'm going to love you for my entire life. But David doesn't mean that. David means that I'm not only going to praise you, God, I'm not only going to worship you until the end of my days, I'm going to worship you forever. When the worship of this earth ceases... I will still be worshiping You eternally. I will be invested in proclaiming Your glory before Your throne. And therefore, because it's an eternal reality that I'm, I'm going to be engaged in, I'm going to not only do it then, I'm going to start doing it now. In this life. So, David goes on here in this psalm, in the, in the stanzas that follow, to describe uh, God for his greatness in verses 5 through 7, his grace in verses 8 through 13, his faithfulness in verses 13 through 16, and then his righteousness in verses 17 through 20. Verse 3 starts by. Praising God for being great. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It means that He is immeasurable worthy of our worship. And His greatness is unsearchable. We can't plumb the depths of the greatness of God. And, 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 and David is thinking here of the greatness of God displayed in the works of God. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. If you skip down to verse 13, you'll find there in the parenthetical, the Lord is faithful in all of His words and kind in all of His works. His, what God does, His deeds are ultimately an outworking of His kindness and His, and His mercy. Now, we can think about the wonderful deeds of God, and we've talked about this as we come to the Psalter, that part of what is being spoken of here and throughout the Psalter is the creative works of God. That in um, seeing the natural beauty of the stars in the heavens or a clear sky... Um, or, the majesty of mountains that we see the handiwork of God, and those great works alone should be enough to cause all of humanity to praise His name. Now we know the reality biblically that is that instead of praising God for his works of creation, we idolize as fallen humanity uh, the creation instead of worshiping him but but here. Uh, encapsulated into the greatness of God are his works and part of that of course is the work of creation but the greatest I think expression of what the psalmist what David really understands as David I think by the time that he was an aged man and probably would have written this was a great theologian I really do believe that. I think he understood as being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, what God had done for him. And what David had seen was not just stepping out and and beholding the the, the, the glory of God in creation, but David had also experienced the reality of... God's saving works. And that's both in a temporal sense all throughout the Psalms, but also specifically in his own life eternally. He understood that he was beloved of God, not because of anything in himself, but only because God had chosen to raise him up as king and ultimately to choose Israel out of all of the nation's of the earth. And so here we see the great greatness of the works of God. It ultimately is revealed not in creation, but in the salvific work that God does uh, in lives of those who love Him and who are called according to His purposes. And of course, in the history of, of, of Israel, we understand that in, in a very real way, uh, the nation of Israel was delivered from captivity to Egypt, and that that was something that was, was held on to as part of their national identity, that God was their deliverer in that sense. Well, friends, in light of the atonement of Christ, we know that we have been set free from our sin. That when we're saved, we are brought from death to life and now we are able not to sin. We are no longer under the tyranny and the rule of sin. God has genuinely set us free. So how when we interact with a Christian brother or sister who wants to claim that well, God just, you know, God's ultimately responsible in some form or fashion of not giving me victory over this particular sin. Friend, the reason we don't have victory is because we're not abiding in Christ. Um, now, we all struggle with besetting sins, and I'm not trying to pick on anyone here, but the reality is we continue to sin because we love sin. Because that's what we choose to do. Christ has genuinely set us free. And David ends this particular stanza in verse 7, that they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud for your righteousness. God is is abundantly good, and His righteousness is full-orbed. It is in abundance. Now, I think one of the magnificent components to this particular stanza is, is in verse 4. Look with me uh, what's, what David says here. He says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Now, again, keep in mind the idea of Egypt being set free, and to the nation of Israel, there was this great, gigantic community of people that were set free from Egypt. And in, in uh, the, the national mindset, there was a very real understanding that this group of people, by God's divine sovereign act, had been set free and saved from, uh, from bondage to Egypt. Well, friends, that's also a reality throughout the church age as God sets His people free from sin. And I think if we're not careful, what we read in verse 4 is merely that one generation will tell the next like I don't know when you were in school if you ever played the game telephone you know you tell your neighbor and then it well what it really demonstrates is how poor we are at communication Uh, because you start with one set of facts and by the time it gets around the room it's a completely different story right It, it breaks down I don't think that's what's being said I think that's part of what's being said in in verse four But I think really the picture here of one generation after another generation after another generation after another generation uh, declaring the wonderful works of God is not merely that they are verbalizing the wonderful works of God, but that they, in each generation, are God's communicating His salvific work. And what I'm saying is that that throughout the church age, one generation God saves those that He will, and then the next, and the next, and the next, until we're standing in the year 2022, and we can look down, uh, we can look back at church history, and we can see gigantic swaths of people that God has redeemed by His sovereign grace alone. He has communicated throughout the generations His salvific works as His church has been brought out of the the dust. I, I think that it's, it's part of what we have to understand is not that God depends upon us... Uh, for the church to continue. I've, I've heard at times, and I do believe we should be evangelistic and we, we should share the gospel. All of those things are true, but if we're not careful, we start to buy into the idea that if we don't work hard enough that somehow God's church is just one generation away from failure. Friends, there has not been a generation to ever walk the face of the earth that could sustain the majesty and the glory of God in redeeming people for His own namesake. God is revealing generation by generation His faithfulness to the church. Isn't that fantastic? You know what that makes me want to do? It makes me want to study church history. I hope it does the same thing for you. I'm absolutely certain that that's implicit in verse 4. We can argue about that later. Um, then he goes on to talk about the, the grace of the Lord in verses 8 through thirteen, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now, we all immediately, when we hear verse eight, know that that is a that that is borrowed from when the Lord introduces Himself to Moses for the first time in Exodus chapter thirty-four, uh, as as Moses is is uh, meeting there at, at Mount Sinai, and these words are recorded. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, "The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will in no by no means clear the guilty." Now, Exodus 13 is a verse that's often quoted in the Old Testament. And for a good reason. It's, it, is, it is the quintessential description of who God is. That He is full of mercy. And He is utterly kind. Now, here's the reality. As we think, and we have been thinking, about the attributes of God. We know that God is mighty. He's powerful. We know that He's omniscient. That He knows all things. Uh, we know that He's wise. We talked about His knowledge. Uh, he is self-sufficient. Um, there are some fantastic attributes of God are there not in his in his moral perfections he's loving and he's just and uh, and and we see uh, also coming up his wrath but but here in his mercy and his compassion what we find is something that really can't be expected towards the human race we are not owed mercy the second that mercy becomes something that we deserve I, I've heard people, when, uh, when they're thinking through the gospel, erroneously say something to the effect of, well, ultimately God saw me and, and he loved me because of, and fill in the blank. And, and what, what is implicit in those kinds of statements is ultimately God loves me because he owes me his love in some form or fashion. But, friends, we, we don't find that in the biblical economy at all. God doesn't owe us his mercy. He owes us justice. He owes us wrath. The the wonderful thing is in verse uh, 6 of Exodus chapter 34 is that God shows up. I mean, if God would have showed up and said, I I am the Lord, full of wrath and justice, the rest of the Bible is kind of unnecessary at that point. Just roll up humanity and we're done. And just a side note, sorry. Not in the notes, but do you hear the clamoring in our culture for justice all the time? Now justice in and of itself is a good thing. And God will bring justice to the earth. And He will bring justice that is impartial and perfect and righteous. That will happen. But friends, we are living on the lowest rung when we demand justice. What we must cry out for when we truly are aware of who we are, it's not justice, it's mercy. God, be merciful to me. So when we find that in our hearts, that is in and of itself a mercy. That God has shown us who we really are, and He's revealed Himself here in in these verses. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for everyone, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He covers all of the bases, all of our stuff. If He has set His love upon us, He has dealt with it in His Son. Again, we remember here that Moses had asked to see God's glory, meaning he wanted to see God in in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 34 of Exodus, he wanted to see uh, God face to face. He wanted to see His splendor. But you'll remember that God responds, no one can see my face or no one can see my glory and live. And yet He, exp- he, he reveals Himself in verse uh, 14, chapter 3 of Exodus as Jehovah, I am Who I am. And here in this particular passage, as he's meeting with with Moses, he's revealing who the great I am is. What does that mean, I am? What are your character traits? And that is, he is compassionate and he is slow to anger. And so David celebrates in these verses, verse 8 through 13, the mercy of God. He talks of God's graciousness, His compassion, His love, His goodness. And and it picks up, too, on the, the mighty acts of God. When God is in His disposition a particular way, we can bank on the fact that He is going to evidence that disposition in how He relates to His creation. When we began, uh, we began looking at how God had called or excuse me, David had called God his God and his King. And here in these verses, we also see the the use of the word kingdom. And it it occurs four times. Dominion uh, 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 occurs once. And um, what he is, is talking about is his rule over our lives. God's Kindness to those who belong to him is that he rules with goodness and love and compassion. And that's why when we come to the topic of God's sovereignty, and people will malign the sovereignty of God and they will make him sound like he's totalitarian, it becomes obvious that they don't have a good grasp on who God is at all because the reality is we're only used to tyrannical kings. And, and leaders. We're only used to sinful monarchs that fall short of the bar of perfection. But our king is gracious and all of his mighty works are right and just. And so here we have this expression that God is gracious to all. And so when we come to the, the sovereignty of God for those of us who are in Christ, it's not something we, we recoil at. It's something that we are so thankful for. And we want His gracious sovereignty to permeate every area of our lives. We want the rule that He has to be over all of the earth. Friends, what we find in all of that is this. We ultimately can't find the motivation for our evangelism in a church growth strategy. Uh, the, 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 the impetus for us sharing the gospel with our neighbor can never be because we just want to fill the seats of the church or the coffers of the church or some man-centered um, reality. The, the reason that we evangelize and share the gospel is because we want the whole earth to be filled with the glory of God that the motivation for true evangelism is not ultimately the immediate outcome it's the glory of God throughout all of eternity remember allow this to be anchored in your mind David is saying I'm going to praise you how long just for this life no forever and ever and because that's a reality I want to evangelize. I want other people to know the King that I know who is worthy of my following. And we sing this all the time uh, on Sunday morning. Is He worthy? He is worthy in every area of our life. And in Revelation chapter 5 we find these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and, uh, kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Friends, the reality is, Jesus is the only one worthy of following because he is our gracious King. He is also our faithful King in verses 13 through 16. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. The, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them. Their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. What David is saying here is that God is faithful to do everything that he has promised. God is the provider for all of his Creation. Derek Kinder, in fact, calls this section of Scripture from the second part of verse 13 all the way to 20, uh, the uh, God as the provider section. And, and he notes here four different ways in which God provides for his creation. In verse 14, he helps the inadequate. In verse 15 and 16, he gives food to all of his creatures. And he answers in verses 18 and 19 all of those who pray to Him. And in verse 20, He protects those who genuinely belong to Him. Our God is faithful to sustain everything that belongs to Him. So the question is, how does God demonstrate that faithfulness? Well, He does it by keeping His promise and by de- and by caring for His creation. In verse 14, when we fall, He lifts us up. In verse 14 also, when we are bowed down by distress, He is the one who restores us. In verse 15, when we are hungry, He provides food to us. In verse 16, when we look to Him with our hands open, empty, and held out, He is the one who satisfies us. He is the one who ultimately provides. And what is fantastic here is that God does this for human being, uh, for, for all human beings. He, he does this to all He has made. In verse 16, to every living creature. God's kindness to every inhabitant of the earth is in some sense universal. Now there's a great uh, deal of confusion when we come to the love of God because we are so tepid in our thinking um we're light thinkers aren't we and and so when god uses the word love it can only mean one thing Uh, it can only mean that he responds in in one way to everyone well that's not what the bible teaches god is a loving god to all of his creation because he makes the the sun to shine on the just and the unjust the rain falls regardless of your your redemptive status whether or not you are a christian There are a lot of good pagan farmers. Um, There are cultures that are carried along who refuse the gospel. God shows His, and we call that theologically, the beneficent love of God. God shows His love in the reality to San Angelo, even though we are a town that is full of idolatry and sinful behavior. God shows His benevolence by filling up Twin Buttes Reservoir from time to time. It's interesting how religious people get when, we, when, the, when, that, when it hasn't rained around here for a while. Everybody's got a sign in their yard that says pray for rain. And won't go to church on Sunday, but boy, we'll ask for that to fill up. And God benevolently grants those kinds of mercies. And isn't that fantastic? I don't know about you, but if I created an entire universe for civilization's worth of people to live in, and those people spurned my name, abused my prophets, violated every commandment I had given them, and refused to give me the worship that was due my name, I think I'd just zap them off the face of the planet and be done with it. But the God that we know is benevolent he gives to people that do not deserve and he loves in that way that doesn't mean that he's going to redeem everyone universally does not mean that anyone is owed mercy the air that we breathe is a mercy the the food that we eat is God's merciful provision But ultimately, God will redeem and love particularly a group of people for His own glory. God is faithful. We find in Genesis chapter 8, verses 21 through 22, really kind of uh, uh, where I think that David gets the, the, the anchoring of these promises as he, God promises that gives the noetic covenant. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. And our God has been faithful from that moment to today to keep His promises. He has continued generation, as verse 4 says, after generation to pour out His benevolent love and He's also been faithful to pour out His redemptive love in redeeming people for His own glory. Ultimately, those of us who belong to Him are never satisfied though with merely the faithfulness that He has towards creation in general We long to be satisfied not with the things of the earth in the common graces. We long to be satisfied with God Himself. It's why Augustine began his confessions by saying, Thou hast formed us. God, You have made us for Yourself. Again, he he begins by acknowledging God as Creator. And our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. If there is one truth... I would want all humanity to understand it would be that one. That we will be restless in this life until we come to a place that we can rest in God. And if that's not the quintessential reality of all of this altar, that that David time and time again and the other psalmists time and time again find themselves in particular circumstances where they are absolutely restless. And then generally at some particular point, if it's a psalm of difficulty, of lament there will be this glorious word, but. And in that pivoting, there will be a turning back to God. It is a very Augustinian way that, that the psalmist had. That's because Augustine read the psalms. Um, uh, but God ultimately is the one who is faithful and He fills us, not merely with the, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't just give us things. It's why I'm so perplexed by a whole generation of quote-unquote Christians who have bought into theologies that really lead them down a path in charismaticism to hold on to material blessings as the first and primary way that they claim to show proof that God has been faithful to them. Uh, One, the reality is God is faithful to the most wicked pagan on the face of the planet in, in, in sustaining them. So that theology doesn't make sense at that level. But then the next tier of thinking has to be the reality that our greatest comfort is not found in the earth. It's found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. My heart stops being restless, not because all of my provisions are are met. That is, in some real sense, part of what God does for me. But the greatest restless areas of my heart are calmed and quieted as i look to the cross and see the glory of the lord jesus christ and what he has done on my behalf so our god is faithful to all of his promises but his people are satisfied primarily in the lord jesus christ and that's what we find in philippians chapter 4 verse 19 paul i believe is encouraging us in that direction my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Christ is sufficient for every, every single spiritual ache of our heart. He is sufficient to meet us in every need. It's absolutely wonderful to look at this passage and to see the universal character of God in His demonstrating His love. Look at verse 20, that the Lord preserves all who love Him, but all of the wicked He will destroy. There is this all-encompassing love that He has poured out in some sense to creation, but there is an all-encompassing particular redemption that is for a particular distinct group. The Lord preserves all, and then there's the qualification, who love Him. Then it goes on. But all the wicked He will destroy. Don't buy into bad hermeneutics. Um, I, I did when I was, well, quite frankly, when I was a college student for quite a while. I had a professor who told me, all means all, and that's all all means. Well, friends, that can never be the reality. Um, Because here, the word all is used in conjunction with two completely different groups of people. There is the all without exception. And that is the all that God is loving. All all of the entire universe who receive God's common graces. the, The rain and the sun and family and all of those things. But here, the Lord preserves all and there is a distinction. So there's all without exception, all on the earth, but then there's all with distinction. The Lord preserves all who love Him. So apparently, all doesn't mean all and that's not all that all means. I think I said that right. God is particular with whom He sets His love upon and He does not do that because of anything in us. Some would come to this verse, verse 20, and they would say, The Lord preserves all who love Him. Therefore, the way that we become saved is that we first love Him. The only problem there is that is antithetical to what the Bible teaches. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. So the only reason that we can claim this all is not because we loved Him, but because He loved us. Friends, if you are here tonight and you love the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoice because you are part of a group that from generation to generation to generation to generation, with distinction, God has been saving for his own glory and you have nothing eternally to worry about. You've found refuge in the shadow of the Almighty. The reality is what we find in this psalm is that God has been good to every single creature. And so everyone ought to praise the name of God. But the reality further is that only those who genuinely love Him will find at the heart level a desire to call upon the name of the Lord and to praise Him for His wonderful works. The last of these four stanzas refer to God's righteousness. Um, the Lord is righteous, in verse 17, in all of His ways and in, and kind in all of His work. Now, here, I think when we heard, hear the word righteous, what we immediately begin to meditate on is being morally upright. Um, and certainly God is morally righteous uh, in that sense. His perfections morally are absolutely without blemish. But here, God's righteousness is not just that He is morally upright, but that He ultimately responds in a just fashion to everyone who calls upon His name. God deals justly with all of His creation. He is the One who redeems those who belong to him and he is at the same time the one who watches over and sustains all that belong to him. And again here in verse 20 and we'll kind of land here for the first time the the, the psalmist has been crying out in, in a in a universal sort of fashion but then we see that distinction and he deals with the wicked. And part of what He is doing here is reminding us that not only does He redeem and hold on to those that belong to Him. Redemption is God's work through and through. But He also will pursue the righteous judgment of those who refuse to worship Him. And part, I believe... I mean, here's the question. This is the, this is the pressing, just practical question as we make it through all 20 verses. David, you've done so well. These are your final words. You've encouraged and stirred us to think about generations of God's salvation, of how He cares for all of... There's not anyone that could bring a charge to God that He hasn't kept one of His promises or that He's been unfair. Like, there's all kinds of reasons in this psalm alone to praise God. Boy, there's nothing like pouring cold water on a good praise uh, psalm than bringing the wicked into it. Why in the world did you do that? Like, don't, don't. In the modern vernacular, don't talk about that. Are you just gonna mess it all up. We were starting to feel good. Oh, think about the wicked. So why? I believe that it's a gift for this reason that as we praise God, David knows. That we're going to do it in a certain context. And that context is in generations of wicked people. In the context of a world that is sold under sin. Friends, don't you see that that Augustine is right in our day? If you look to Congress, our leaders, The hearts of people are restless. They're constantly trying to do something that will will make us all happy and we can build this utopian society and we can do it all on our own. And yet, here we are a couple hundred years into the experiment and you know what has never happened? None of those promises have ever really been delivered. We live in a time, I, I think I've spoken about this several times, I don't mean to... Beat a dead horse, proverbially. But but our government insists upon passing laws that promote unrighteousness. That promote homosexuality. And, you know, people say, well, if you're not for those kinds of things, you're not loving. I told a friend of mine recently... Pastoring for 10 years gives you a little bit of a perspective. And I know that there are people who hurt because they are sexually victimized. And when nations begin to pass laws that enshrine sexual depravity, there is no room for genuinely loving people who have suffered in those categories. Our nation is not just slowly sliding down. We are rapidly becoming Babylon. And I think there's an argument that could be made that we've been there for a long time, generations. And what David wants us to know tonight in verse 20 is don't despair, don't let that overwhelm you. Don't let the wicked become your focus. In fact, if you look at the lost and dying world when I spoke of justice earlier, part of the problem that we have is we want to rush to some political forum or a courtroom or whatever and cry out for justice and point the finger at the person who is the evildoer. As long as it's not our evil. you want our pound of flesh. I want to be delivered in those ways. I think what David want us to, would want us to understand is that the greatest evil resides in our own heart. And as you make your way, and think about it, Psalm 145, we've come through the Psalms of ascent. We've thought about coming into the throne room of God. And what David in verse 20 is doing is not messing up the worship psalm. He's encouraging us to press on. And that in the face of of wicked rulers, and foolish legislation, we don't turn our pulpits especially or our homes into places where we think that we can politically manipulate ourselves into a better place. We know under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God in this text that the way forward is not through everything that is out there, it's through being people who in every facet of our lives, every day, David says, and forever and ever become worshipers of the triune God. We can can not only in here, but in every sphere of our life, overcome by act of worship. If you want to rebel against this generation, if you want to rebel against the foolishness in Washington, if you want to rebel against the humanistic thought that has permeated society for at least the past 500 years, don't just immerse yourself in politics, become a true worshiper of the living God. Worship in the face of a ruined world, knowing that one day God's going to be faithful to his eschatological promises and he's going to restore the earth he's going to redeem his people and what are we going to do for all of eternity but worship him forever now the last verse of psalm 145 is really the last word here that we have from david in all of the bible it's kind of his last will and testament and i'm I'm, as I preach y'all like Bible verses like through my head and I never can quite get the references down so I may butcher this but I think that the Bible records of David that he, he lived faithful in his own generation he went to sleep but here are David's words not just the conclusion of his narrative but the summation of his heart and if David had said nothing else, if we, if we knew nothing of David, if, if we didn't know about David and, and Goliath, and, and we didn't know about the way that he lovingly submitted to Saul even when he was a knothead. That's a good Missouri word. Um, if we didn't know all of the grand narrative of David's life, if this was the only verse, I think it's a fantastic legacy to leave. When he says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. You know, when presidents get to the end of their tenure, often the political pundits will ask them the questions. I remember distinctly George W. Bush being asked about what do you want your legacy to be? And he kind of, I don't know, I'm not leading for legacy just trying to do my job and i think really what we have in david here is is this isn't just something that he's you know i well mm, that whole thing with Bathsheba that went really wrong i'm gonna spike the football on the way out and hope they just remember this i think this genuinely was david's heart he wanted all flesh he wanted everyone to praise god why so they could be moral people so they could believe they were better and got, gotten past mistakes and all ultimately no david wanted everything to give glory to god because david had lived through suffering and through turmoil in his family and through political strife and through rebellions and almost losing his life. And I mean, let the Psalms flash through your mind on your own. I don't have to do it. David had lived through so much and what he learned in that single solitary life was this. God is glorious and He is worthy of praise. Now here's the question. We all are are bequeathed through David. And if you want a great book on David, William Chantry's book entitled David, and the chapters are like three pages, so don't tell me you can't read. Um, Fantastic work. And we have his example. And we have this question through his example in light of verse 21. What's your legacy going to be? What is it that you're going to live for? Is it to raise kids that are Republicans? I don't know what the Republicans are going to be like in 20 years. I'm not real fond of what they're doing right now. Or are, are we going to are we going to live our lives to to just you know, build beautiful buildings and I don't know, fill in the blank. You know, to have the perfect... I think some families weirds me out. Uh, You know, like, just to be this picture-perfect family on the outside while we devour each other on the inside. Is that our legacy? Or do we want to leave to our children a legacy? And friends, I'll just tell you this. I'm guilty at times of complaining far too much. Uh, This verse is convicting to your pastor i find in the church far too often people who are always out to look for the worst of what's happening both in society and in their congregation Well, we didn't have much attendance last week well the pastor preaches too long i mean that's true we can live our lives that way and you know what we'll accomplish in the end nothing Here, David gives us the gift of knowing what our legacy, if our hearts are ordered rightly, should be. Not to be perfect people. Not to to hide our flaws, but that our mouths would speak the the praise of the Lord. That we would acknowledge Him for who He is. That we would, in an act of worship, do what is right in praising His name because His works are wondrous and His deeds wonderful are all kind and His statutes are all just and His character is perfect and that we would encourage all the generations to come to bless His holy name not only in this age but in the age to come. So what's Your legacy going to be? Would you pray with me? Father, we come into Your presence tonight. Thankful that You are a God who is glorious and that You don't forget fallen humanity, sinful, rebellious men who aren't glorious. Father, I'm thankful that You have saved me and my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room tonight. I'm thankful that You've not left us with our misconceptions. I think back to my young Christian life and walk with You, Lord. And I think about the realities of all of the misconceptions I had of who You were and how You worked. And You've not left me in those things. Through the working of Your Spirit and by Your Word, You've opened my eyes day by day. And I know You've done that for my friends in this room. You've shown Your glorious works in Your Word generation to generation. And not only that, but You've opened our eyes spiritually to the reality of the wonderment of all of Your works. Father, might You stir in us a heart that would make our life's aim to be genuine worshipers. We're going to have to lay aside every material thing that we have on the earth. We are going to we are going to one day even lay aside for, our time, for a time our own bodies. But the one thing we get to hold on to is worshiping You in spirit and in truth. Father, we know we couldn't do that alone. So we come tonight just thanking You for who You are and seeking to praise You in all of Your glory. Would You do what You alone can do and day by day do for us what Moses asked Show us your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand, if you will, and we'll sing, Jesus, keep you near the cross.